This is Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, Illinois. I want to tell you about one of the most remarkable Americans that you've probably never heard of in the history of America, literally. And I only heard about this guy like a year ago. His name is George Lyle, L-I-E-L-E. Anybody know him? Uh, George was born in 1750 in the state of Virginia. His mother was a slave. His father was a slave. He was born into slavery. His white slave owner seemed to be somebody who cared about George and so brought him to their little Baptist church where George heard the gospel and became a believer in Jesus. And George himself said, I saw my condemnation in my own heart, and I only knew it was through the merits of my dying Savior that my sins could be forgiven. He started preaching. And to their credit, some of the white slave owners of that day thought, this man can preach. We got to set him up. So his slave owner actually made sure that he obtained his freedom and made sure that he had the resources to preach, and he started a church, what was maybe the first or one of the first Baptist churches in the United States. He eventually moved to Jamaica, where he became probably, there's a little bit of debate about this, but probably became the first global foreign missionary that this country has ever sent out. Now, I grew up in a church in high school that placed a huge emphasis on what we call foreign missions, global missions. So I heard all kinds of stories about amazing people, men and women, that embarked on incredible missions, crossing seas, crossing lands to preach to unreached people. But I never heard of George Lyle. While he was in Jamaica in 1791, he sent back to his denominational leaders that in that year alone, in 1791, he had seen 500 people come to Christ, and he had baptized 400 people in one year. Now, I'm amazed by this story. I'm amazed that I never heard it. And there's a question like, why did I never hear that? But that's, that's not what I'm going to talk about. It's just one story among many of followers of Jesus who embarked on incredible quests, engaged in adventure, risked their lives sometimes, and sometimes gave their lives, sometimes were martyred to bring the gospel to places where the gospel had never been preached before. And where does that come from? Well, it comes from the lips of Jesus himself. We've probably seen verses in the gospel of Matthew, gospel of Luke, but this is what, this is what the gospel of John, this is the Great Commission according to John. And it's a little tiny verse Chapter 20, verse 21 in the Gospel of John. And if you're an open-the-Bible kind of person, I, want you to, I invite you to open your Bible right now. If you're not an open-the-Bible kind of person, just listen along. So, but I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20 because I want to look at this little verse. It's a tiny verse. And I've been reading the Bible for over 40 years. I've never really thought much about this verse, just kind of zipped right by it. Never really hit me. But this week or the last couple weeks, it... It really hit me. This is really uh, a radical, exciting verse. So Jesus says, at the end of verse 21, he says, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So if you read the Gospel of John, all throughout the Gospel of John, you'll see 
time after time after time, dozens of times when Jesus says, the Father has sent me, I have been sent. So Jesus is the preeminent sent one. He says it literally dozens of times. Just do a, a word search. Go to Bible Gateway or something and do a word search. And you can see how many times Jesus says, I've been sent from the Father. And now, after the resurrection, he flips that, and he puts a twist to it, and he says, actually, as the sent one, I'm now sending you. So you are going to be sent. And it literally, that word, as the Father has sent me, literally could be translated in the same manner, with the same passion, with the same heartbeat, with the same methodology, with the same strategy, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Well, so how did the Father send the Son? Well, I think we get some clues from one of the most famous verses in the Bible, John 3:16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. How did God the Father send God the Son out of the bosom of the Father, as John says in chapter 1? How did he send him? Well, he sent him in great love, in great cost to himself. He gave. And he not only, that, that was not only the depth of it, but the scope of it. God so loved the world. So God not only loves Think of where you live, think of your house, think of the people you live with. God loves there, God loves your neighborhood, God loves your city, God loves your nation, God loves, but God loves the world. So God's heart is thinking about, he's thinking about places like Ukraine, he's thinking about places like Russia, he's thinking about places like China and Ethiopia and Rwanda and Papua New Guinea. God is thinking about those things. God loves the world and he has a plan for the world. And we are sent. We are sent ones by the sent one. The sent one is sending us. Now, this is one of the most exciting, adventurous, daring, just captivating things that we find in the Christian life. But it's also one of the hardest, most costly, scariest, riskiest thing we do. You know, one of the hardest things we do at Church of the Resurrection, one of the hardest things we do is say goodbye to people. And they're leaving because we're sending them, because they want to be sent. So many of you know Father Chad and Kirsten Magnuson. They were here for a couple of years. We love them. They were so great. I don't know if you, if you had a chance to get to know them, they were just some of the nicest, kindest, sharpest Christian leaders we've met in a long time. And then we send them up to Wisconsin. You know, they're gone. They're like two and a half hours away. And that hurts. Eight years ago, we had a priest here named Gregory Whitaker, Father Gregory, and his wife Heidi, who's a pediatrician. And we sent them to Phnom Penh to Cambodia. Do you know how far, how long it takes to get to Phnom Penh? It's so far away. I used to have breakfast or lunch with Father Gregory like every three weeks. Now we're just because of the time difference. I can barely talk to him like maybe once a month through an email. It hurts. Now, because it's costly and because it hurts and because it's risky, as your pastor and as your friend, I'm going to do you a favor this morning. Such a deal I have for you. I am going to give you three excellent excuses for why you can opt out of God's global missions. Why you, it does not apply to you. Why you need not apply. Here's the three reasons. I think they're very good ones. 
It's scary. It's harmful. It's hard. Three very compelling reasons. Unfortunately, Jesus has already anticipated your excuses, as you might imagine, and they're already in the gospel text. So the first one, it's scary. Look at verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Now, I just have to pause and add a parenthesis. So when you hear the, word, the phrase, the Jews, in the Gospel of John, he uses it in a number of different ways. He doesn't use it in one way every time. So you have to know the context to know how he's using it. So in this context, the Jews means a specific, smaller group of Jewish leaders who were hostile to the message of Jesus. Now, why is that important? Because Christians have misinterpreted verses like this, in, especially in the Gospel of John, and it has led the church at times to commit some very terrible atrocities against Jewish people. That's part of our history, and part of it stems from bad biblical interpretation. Some of it's a hard, I mean, obviously it's a hard issue, but some of it's just bad interpretation. So we say, interpreting the Bible doesn't matter. I can interpret it any way I want. Everybody has a valid interpretation. Not so. It's not true. We have to do our homework. And that's what we try to do every Sunday. But, but let, let me move on. That was just parenthetical. So they were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. Jesus came, and what's he do? He stood among them, or literally right in the middle of them. Isn't that beautiful? They are locked behind the doors. They're scared. They're not going to come to Jesus, so he comes to them. He's always the one pursuing us, and he goes right through the locked doors. He'll go right through the locked door of your heart if you'll let him. And that we believe that's what he does every Sunday morning. He shows up right in the middle of us, and what does he say? He gives them a word, peace be with you. He actually says it three times. He says it in verse 21. He says it again, peace be with you. And then when Thomas shows up, Thomas the doubter, he says to him, peace be with you. Why does he say it so many times? Because he knows how scared we get. He knows how we struggle with fear and anxiety. So he says, I'm not going to just say it once and then get sick of you not getting it. I'll say it again. If you need to hear it again, I'll say it again. I've been thinking about these words all week when I've been scared, when I've been anxious, and I'm trying to like just take these words let them penetrate my heart. Jesus says, peace be with you. And the word he most likely used, since he was a Jew, was the word shalom. Shalom be with you. And shalom is this robust biblical word, which doesn't just mean inner peace and lack of anxiety, although it means that. It means, it means that everything is going to be okay because God is going to make it that way. It's wholeness. It's completion. It's redemption. It's peace in every level and every direction. And so Jesus says, I give you that kind of peace. It's not the peace that you're never going to be hurt. You're never going to be disappointed. You're never going to have problems. You're never going to have pain for some people that are working in hard places sharing the gospel over some of our brothers and sisters. It doesn't mean you might not be killed for your faith. It doesn't even mean that. But it does mean that Romans 8.28 is true that God will cause all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purposes. It's that kind of peace, that kind of shalom. I was on a Zoom call with some, on Thursday night with some pastors from, from India, and a couple weeks ago I read a New York Times article titled, Arrests 
beatings and silent prayers, the persecution of Christians in India. It was a phenomenal article, just top-notch reporting, very moving, very sobering. So basically, when a wave of Hindu nationalism that has swept through the Indian country and government, our brothers and sisters in Christ are being severely persecuted, not just ostracized, but arrested, beaten, maligned, hunted down. So I was on that call with them, and here's these, these pastors, there's like one, one little Zoom frame, there was a, like a little cell phone, and there's like 10, I don't know, 12, 15, 20 people, I couldn't tell. They're all like crammed in this little room. They're listening, and, and I'm, I'm sharing from this text. And as I was preaching, I just thought, I just feel like, I think you guys should be preaching to me. You know, maybe it should be going that way. I'm not sure why I'm the preacher here because you're living with a, surrounded by a lot more fear than I am. And yet, just the hunger to meet the Lord, the hunger to grow, the hunger to share the gospel is very humbling. Let me ask you, and this is not about health decisions you had to make or, or anything like that, but over the last two years, today, have you become more open to mission or more anxious and fearful about mission? See, I look at my own life and I think, I've had two years to grow. And I don't know if I've really grown much in that. Or maybe I've slipped backwards. Jesus' words, peace be with you, he wants to equip us for mission in the world. Second excuse, it's harmful. By that I mean that there's a fear lurking in many people's minds that the history of global missions is a pretty simple story of colonialism, destruction of local cultures based on racial and cultural superiority. That's pretty much the simple story. Let me just say a few things about that. First, it's a really valid question that we need to wrestle with as Christians. We're the people that, that need, get down on our knees every Sunday and we confess our sins. And so we're not, we shouldn't be afraid to face things that, where we failed. Second thing, let me also say, and, and we have, we have in that area. The second thing I want to say is, it's not entirely, but it's a little bit of old news. Um, so for decades now, the church has been much more global than it has been just from, well, let me put it this way, the, the Peruvian theologian Samuel Escobar, he once said that the, the gospel, the way mission is being operated in the world today is no longer just from the West to the rest, but it's from everyone to everywhere. So today, South Korea sends out more missionaries than the United States. Nigeria has an active mission sending to the West. It's no longer from the West to the West. It's from anywhere to everywhere, everyone to anywhere. So that's also part of our story. And third, let's, just, let's look at the text. Let's get back to the, the biblical text, verse 20. So after Jesus says, peace be with you, verse 20 says, when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Literally, they were ecstatic. They were overwhelmed with joy. And what did he show them? He didn't say anything. He showed them something. He showed them his hands and his side. What would they have seen? Wounds, 
scars from the cross. This is the one whom Thomas will exclaim, and Jesus will agree with him, my Lord and my God. And he still has wounds. He will always be the crucified Savior, the crucified Lord. Now, in the history of religions, that is just simply unheard of. And simply, as some people would argue, that's simply irreligious. Religion is not about a God who has been wounded and vulnerable and stays wounded on our behalf. So when it says that we do mission in the same manner as God the Father sent God the Son, it means that we do mission or we should do mission. Our model is mission based on suffering, redemptive, sacrificial, giving love. And if it ever is fueled by racial or cultural superiority, we have missed the point. We have missed the mark. We are off the mark of Jesus, though, which means we can get back to where Jesus is. So a wounded Savior calls wounded people and sinful people to go into a wounded world. But we're part of that wounded world. We're never above it. So has the church always done this well? No, not at all. But has the church done it well sometimes? Absolutely. You read the story of the global missions, sometimes we have done it well. I was talking to Bishop Kawashi in Joss, Nigeria, and I asked him about this question about colonialism and what does he think about that in Nigeria, and he said, Matt, let me tell you this story. If you go outside a city, there are two graves for two brothers who came from England. They were the Fox brothers. Both of them came to share the gospel in Joss, Nigeria. Many people came to know Jesus through those two brothers. Both of them died in their 20s at a very young age. And then their parents, who were so moved by what their sons had done, the sacrifice of their sons, the parents sacrificed. They didn't go to Joss, but they started a movement back in England to send young men and women to Joss. They said, we know Jesus today because those two brothers from the West came to us. But he said, Matt, and, and we will be eternally grateful. We're still grateful, but make no mistake, Matt. Now we're full-grown adults. We don't need any paternalism. We want to be partners. We want to be full, grown-up, adult partners. And in some ways, I have to be honest, you need us to send missionaries more than we need your missionaries. We need both, but you also need us because many of you in the West have lost the faith that you once had. That's partnership. That's the beauty of missions the way it should be and can be. Third objection is it's hard. And by that I mean it's too hard for me. It's too hard for you. And so we immediately feel unworthy. We feel like my faith is little. It's fragile. Well, Jesus knows this. He knows the disciples. Their faith is fragile. And so he gives them a gift. Look at verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. I love this. It's so sacramental. You know, we talk about as Anglicans that matter matters, that what we do with our bodies matter. It's so sacramental. He looks them. You got to imagine Jesus, each and every disciple, looks them in the eye, breathes on them, and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, 
You're supposed to be, and the disciples were undoubtedly, and Jesus undoubtedly had this, and I, I have very little doubt that Jesus had this in mind. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7, that says, Then the Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The Bible is one story. He's tying the Testaments together. He's tying the Old Covenant with the New Covenant. He's tying them together. He's trying the, the Jewish people and the, and, the, and, the, and the church. He's tying it together and saying it's one story. And it's the sheer gift of the power of the Holy Spirit. My son, Matt, is a missionary doctor in Papua New Guinea, and he says, you know, Dad, one thing that bothers us in Papua New Guinea is that in America, all you preachers, all you talk about is the love of God. All you talk about is the grace of God. But our people need to hear the power of God because they're in bondage to spirits, and they're in bondage to, to uh, just some really bad stuff, and they need to be set free with an act of power. They need the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, Jesus gives both. He not only gives grace, but he gives power. And the only way the disciples could have missed this was by ducking. So Jesus gets ready to breathe. Whew, I missed it. Whew, that was a close call. That is to say, again, this is a sheer gift. We talk about justification by faith, that God justifies us by faith in Jesus and what he has done for us. Well, here we see justification. We see the shalom is given by faith. We see the spirit is given by faith. That's why I love George Lyle, because here's this freed slave who lived with so much opposition to his ministry. So when he moved to Jamaica, people hounded, hounded him. White slave owners, um, they were concerned, I quote, if, if the minds of the slaves are enlightened by the gospel, it will cause most dangerous consequences. Now, you can say, in a way, they were wrong, but in a way, they were right. They really understood the gospel. It would cause most dangerous consequences to them and their financial status. So they arrested him, they jailed him, they released him, they jailed him again, they hounded him, they threatened him, and he kept preaching the gospel in Jamaica until the day he died. This freed slave, largely untrained, but filled with the Holy Spirit. So the sent one sends us. We all have a stake in this. We all have a zone of responsibility for this. It doesn't all look the same. It doesn't all mean we cross overseas to foreign lands. Remember Samuel Escobar, the gospel is no longer from the West to the rest. It's from everyone to everywhere. And so we're part of that whole situation now. But we all have a stake in it. And that's the point of this kind of strange-sounding verse 23, where Jesus says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Does that mean that, like, you're, you and I are the source of forgiveness? That we're the, we're the, like, the well, the water supply, the power supply of forgiveness? I don't think that's what Jesus meant. But he is saying something very serious to us and our responsibility here. He's saying that my plan A, and I don't have a plan B, my plan A is that you will not be the source of forgiveness, but you will be the conduit of forgiveness. So you're not the water of life. You're not this spring of clear living water, 
But I do want you to come and take a cup and then bring it to people who are dying of thirst. So you're not the one who makes the meals. You're not the master chef. But you are like DoorDash. You've got to deliver it or it's not going to arrive there. So you have a responsibility. Now, there's, there's a way that I, I like to look at this, which I shared in a sermon about five years ago, but there's a way I like to look at this. It's, just, it's simple, but I, I hope it will lead you to pray and discern in your own life where, what is your zone of responsibility. So my youngest son, Wes, is a soccer player, played soccer in college, soccer coach, and um, if you know anything about soccer, you know that there is this thing called a goalie box, where the goalie kind of has domain in his or her section, sometimes called the penalty box. It's like 18 yards by 18 yards. It's marked off with chalk. And in that box, which um, sometimes goalie will call, goalies will call my box or my house, like, and they'll, when they get all tough, they'll go, ain't nobody coming in my house. This is my house. Nobody's going to score on me in my house. So they do talk that way. If I, but so but they also have certain superpowers, not only responsibility because they're the last line of defense, but they also have a superpower they can use their hands. And nobody else on the field can use their hands except for the goalie in his or her box, only in the box, not outside the box. So what I would like, what I want you to do this week, or maybe next year, maybe transformation intention, which you'll be hearing about, would be a a good avenue for you to explore this, is to get clarity on your box when it comes to the mission that God has given you. What is your box? Who's in it? What are the things that you're passionate about that God's put on your heart? What are the duties in your box? What are the responsibilities? What is the influence or the privileges that you have in your box that you can use for the Lord Jesus? It may involve praying. It may involve giving. It may involve encouraging others. It may involve equipping. It may involve what you do for a career. If you're, especially if you're a college student, Jesus may not just change your character. He may change what you do for a career. He might. It's possible. What is your box? What is your mission? How is the sent one sending you at this season in this stage in your life. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. My peace I give to you. Receive the Holy Spirit. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Thanks for listening. Our vision at Church of the Resurrection is to equip everyone for transformation. As part of that vision, we love to share dynamic teaching, original music, and stories of transformation. For more of what you heard today, check out the rest of our podcast. To learn more about our ministry, visit churchres.org.